It is a privilege to be with you this morning. I send greetings to you from your brothers and sisters in Christ in Douglasville at Grace Presbyterian Church. You need to remember that you are not alone as you seek to be a light set upon a hill in the midst of a dark world. You have those who are laboring with you, and you can rejoice in that, just as we rejoice to know the same concerning you. If you would, please take a Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 29. 1 Samuel chapter 29, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 11 this morning. And you might know that in the previous chapters, Saul has been chasing after David. He wanted him dead. And yet, eventually, perhaps you remember that David ran to the Philistines to hide out. But now, there's war. War between Philistia and Israel. It's coming near. And so the question is, is what in the world is David going to do? Is he going to help his enemies? Or is he going to help his people? How will David get out of this? Well, the text before us gives us the answer. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's most holy word. Starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands. And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me it seems right that you should march out and end with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then rise early in the morning, the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is God's most holy word. Would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, we are grateful for your word. And we ask that you would speak to us through it this morning. We ask that you would give us eyes to see the glorious truths found in this passage. 
that you would enlighten our hearts, fill our minds, and shape our wills with it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin, I want you to imagine with me that you are applying for a job. You believe that it would be great right up your alley, a perfect fit for you. So you go to the interview, and everything seems wonderful. You thought they loved me, and I loved them. But then, a few days later, you get that call. You know what I'm talking about. Sorry, we've, we've chosen someone else. You've been rejected. You think to yourself, what a bummer. But then you hear about how they treat their employees, their expectations, their shoddy business practices. And someone says to you, you realize God spared you, right? He used their rejecting of you to protect you. Well, that is similar to what happens here in our text this morning. David was snubbed by the Philistines. They didn't want his help against Saul and the Israelites. And yet, in this, God was at work. He was active, behind the scenes, we might say, providing protection. His imprint is all over the place in this text as he turns the actions of men for the purpose of shielding David. We find here spurning David, but also seeing God's providence. And the good news revealed in this passage, it ought to bring us comfort and instill in us a sense of confidence in our sovereign Lord. Though sometimes his activity is imperceptible, he is at work for his glory and for the good of his people. Let's look at this more deeply by first noticing God's deliverance, verses 1 to 7, God's deliverance. And speaking about deliverance, this is something that we see the Lord doing all throughout the Scriptures, right? He rescues people. He delivered Israel from the grip of Pharaoh. Esther and Mordecai from the evil plots of Haman. Joseph, Mary, and the infant Jesus from wicked King Herod. Peter and John from the hands of the religious leaders. God is, we might say, in the delivering business. And we see him doing it here with David. But first, for just a minute, think about the seeming impossibility of deliverance. In the chapters leading up to ours, David's been struggling. He believed that there was no good place in Israel to hide from Saul. He's going to catch me eventually, he thought in his mind. So David sought refuge in Philistia, and he did so rather than in the Lord, we must confess. And he even, exchanged, he even engaged in deception, to protect himself. He lied to Achish, king of Gath, telling him how he raided and ransacked Israelite towns when in fact it was Canaanite ones. For nearly, nearly a year and a half, he kept up this ruse. His life was a mess, and it got worse. 
when Achish said to him, You will go out and fight with me against Saul and your people. To which David foolishly responded, You just wait, I'll show you what I can do in battle. But there's a problem here. David didn't really want to go to war against his own people. He didn't want to battle Saul. That's one reason why he ran away from Israel to begin with. Besides, if he did fight on the side of the Philistines, how could he ever be accepted as king of Israel in the future? The two nations are foes, not friends. And how could, the, how could he be the Lord's anointed ruler if he was somehow responsible for the death of Saul? David knew that he couldn't put his hand out against the Lord's anointed one, the king. So as we begin this chapter, the looming question is, how in the world is David going to get out of this situation? He's put himself in a tight spot. It appears that David will either be found out as a fake or left out as being the future king. Deliverance from his predicament, it seemed impossible. Look at verse 1. The Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. Both sides were there readying for the battle. And verse 2 tells us that David and his men were also there, parading in front of the Philistine lords. So then how is David going to get out of this? Help the Philistines and I'm done for. Don't, and the same will be true. It appears hopeless. Of course, we can find similar circumstances in other Bible passages, right? Think about Daniel. Unlikely that he is going to make it out alive from a den of hungry lions. Better yet, what about his friends who were thrown into a fiery furnace? No way that they're going to be rescued, one would think. Greater still, think about you and me in our natural state. Lost, rebellious, spiritually dead, habitual transgressors of the law, under condemnation, suffering curse, in bondage to sin, estranged from God, deserving wrath. What hope do we have? Seemingly no chance of deliverance. But it is in situations like this that God rescues. He delivered Daniel from being cat food. His friends from being roasted. And he delivers sinners like us through Jesus Christ. Ah, But maybe you think that your circumstances are, are beyond help. Your marriage your children, your job, your sins, they're just too great. You don't understand my situation, pastor. You don't know what I have done. There's no hope for me. Well, perhaps from a human perspective, there isn't. But from a divine one, there is. Because God delivers even in impossible circumstances. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? He came to Christ asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him, obey the commandments, to which the guy responded, I've I've done so. 
But then Jesus told him to leave everything that he had, give it to the poor, and to follow him. The man couldn't do it. He just walked away. And Jesus let him go, telling his disciples how difficult it is for for people like this man, seemingly righteous and loving wealth, to enter the kingdom of God. But interestingly, his disciples retorted, if this righteous and rich man doesn't make it into the kingdom of God, then who does? In fact, what about us? It seems then that we, along with everyone else, have have no shots at being saved. To which Jesus declared, with man, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God, including the salvation of sinners. And listen carefully. If the Lord can deliver transgressors from condemnation, then He can help you in your trials as well. They may seem impossible, insurmountable, but not with God. The question is, will you come to Him? You might be thinking, well, I've already done that, Pastor. Good. Come again and again and again. Come and trust the God who delivers even in impossible circumstances. However, not only do we learn about the seeming impossibility of deliverance, but also the surprising nature of God's deliverance. Consider In this passage, what happened to David? There he was with his men parading in front of the Philistine commanders. When all of a sudden, verse 3, they said, what are these Hebrews doing here? In other words, why are they over here on our side wanting to fight with us? They just told them that it was David, a servant of Saul, a deserter of Israel, his loyal subject, whom he said in verse 3, I have found no fault in him to this day. But they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that David was so trustworthy. In fact, they were angry with Achish for his naivete and boneheadedness. And so they demanded, verse 4, Send the man back. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. Why did they react this way? So harshly. And perhaps you recall back in 1 Samuel chapter 14, When Saul was fighting with the Philistines, there was a group of Hebrews who were allied with them. In the battle, this group turned on the Philistines, aiding in Saul's victory. Well, guess what? These military commanders, they remembered that. They said, no way in the world is this guy going to join with us. They were afraid that he who lopped off Goliath's head would do the same thing to them. Wouldn't that be the perfect way for him to get back into Saul's good graces, they argued? Besides, verse 5, Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. He's got a reputation of killing Philistines. No chance he's coming with us. And so Achish pulled David aside, and he told him, I've found no fault with you. Verse 6. Nevertheless, the Lord do not approve of you. So go back now 
and go peaceably, that you may not despise the lords of the Philistines. Now, from one perspective, David had been rejected. They didn't want him. But from another, God had delivered him. Now he would not have to fight against his own people. And and neither would his life be in jeopardy due to the Philistines fighting about his, his deception. God liberated him from his predicaments. He rescued him. And he did so in the most, most surprising fashion. In this case, through unlikely saviors. The Philistines. Who in the world would have seen that one coming? It's a bit shocking. And the scriptures give other examples of surprising deliverance as well. Uh, The Red Sea being parted so that the Israelites could escape the Egyptian soldiers. King Cyrus of Persia, a a pagan ruler being used by the Lord to set the, the exiles free. And most clearly of all, the saving of sinners through the cross. As Christians, we oftentimes forget just how surprising Jesus' death on Golgotha's hill really was. Remember how Peter responded when Christ first talked about how he must die? He began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. Why did Peter react that way? Because naturally it seems as if this was not supposed to happen. How how will we be saved if this occurs to the Savior? Much worse, how can we be delivered if he goes to the cross? Think about where Jesus was killed. As one writer noted, it was not in a cathedral between two candles, but on the town garbage heap at the kind of places where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, where the remains of previous executions were still lying around. It was a place where sin abounded. That was where Jesus was killed. And that is where sinners are delivered? Yes, it's scandalous. It's surprising. God saves through the horror of the cross. But think about it from a different angle. Who put Jesus on the cross? Well, in one sense, Acts 2, wicked men, Jewish leaders and Roman authorities, they crucified the Lord of glory. And yet, just as with these Philistine commanders and David, through the actions of these enemies, God brought deliverance for sinners. He also was at work. So so don't miss the surprising nature of the cross, that that the Lord would save through a Roman instrument of torture, that he would use the decisions of wicked men to crucify Christ for the purpose of rescuing people like you and like me. Be amazed that God would do such things. Be in awe of him rather than apathetic 
and be stupefied instead of unfeeling. Be full of faith that He is so great a God that He can save you from what your sins deserve. And that He can help you in the trials that you are facing right now. I don't know what they are. Maybe it's a a difficult marriage. Maybe it's hard kids or teenagers. Maybe it's hard parents. Perhaps you're having some financial difficulties. Maybe it's some kind of physical or emotional hardship that you are wrestling with. Whatever it is, do not lose hope. God does the impossible, and He even does it surprisingly. Whatever you're going through, won't you be confident? Won't you trust the Lord? Won't you remember that God delivers? But this passage has something else to teach us. Not just about God's deliverance, but also God's mercy. Verses 8 to 11. God's mercy. Throughout David's ordeal, he has shown himself to be less than faithful. He didn't rely upon the Lord, but ran to the Philistines for help. While there, he had been engaged in an elaborate deception. He'd been duplicitous, pretending to be for Achish when in fact he was against him. And God's law was clear about such actions. Deuteronomy 5, don't do it. And Proverbs 6 is one of the things that the Lord hates. And yet David was doing it. He even continued to do it after the king of Gath told him to go home. Look at verse 8. David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? We see here that like an Emmy award-winning actor, how David played the parts of a faithful servant, deceiving Achish once more, feigning concern for being rejected, flattering the king with submissive words. We do have to ask at this point, is this how we act? Lying to others, being engaged in unrepentant deception, being two-faced, Pretending to be one way, when in reality, we are something very different. Using smooth words to manipulate people. These are all sinful actions. Things that David should have turned from. Things that you and I are called to repent of. Are we doing so? Are we actively seeking to put to death deceitful ways? May God help each one of us to do so. Uh, But back in our text, after David uttered his insincere questions and flattering words, notice what happened next. The king began to have suspicions about David. He began to get a clue regarding his loyal subjects' true motives. No, not at all. Actually, something very different occurred. Look at verse 9. 
Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, he shall not go up with us to the battle. What did Achish do? He declared David to be upright. He was deceived. And he told David to leave the next day, and David did it. Verse 11, he set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. David went in the opposite direction where the battle was about to take place. He would not even be close to where the war was about to unfold. But, of course, there's more here than David and his men going one way and Achish and the Philistines another. You see, God was at work being merciful to David. Even though he didn't deserve it, the Lord worked through Achish's blindness in order to guard David. God was delivering him despite the fact that he was finding refuge in Philistia and in spite of his continued deception. God was saving him even though he didn't warrant it. David should have been cast off. He hadn't been faithful. He should have been found out. He was dishonest. But the Lord was kind to him. Divine mercy was pursuing him, providentially working things for his good, even though he didn't warrant it. David had ran away from God's presence, but the hound of heaven lovingly chased after him, bringing deliverance even though he didn't deserve it. In the past, God had saved David from Saul time and time again, But you know what? Here, God did so from himself. God delivered David from David. From his own self-imposed predicaments. From there being any question as to whether he would have anything to do with Saul's impending death. that We see at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. So... What do we learn here? One writer put it this way. God's inexhaustible mercy, it doesn't dry up. John Owen put it this way. His grace is like an unending well. It doesn't run out. God doesn't quit showing grace to whom he will show grace. Of course, Romans 9, it is his prerogative to extend mercy to whomever he will. He didn't with Saul, but does with David. And as this chapter reminds us, the Lord's actions were certainly not based upon how righteous David was. No, God determined to persist in showing mercy to David because he wanted to. And as as an aside, who are we to criticize God for his sovereign choice? Especially when no one deserves his favor. It tells us that the point here in this, this text is that God lovingly shows mercy Like with David, he's even determined to do it, relentlessly chasing after his people, overcoming every obstacle, even the ones that they put in the way. That means that God doesn't love them one minute and stop doing so the next when they sin. His is a mercy that doesn't end, but instead lasts. Yet, What should our reaction be to such 
relentless mercy. One is believe. Believe in Christ. He is the embodiment of mercy. We were not worthy of his coming. He was the high and exalted God, the creator holding the heavens in his hands, the sun, the moon, and the stars in his palm. He is the the son, the second person of the Trinity, who condescended in a garb of flesh and bone, coming to a cursed world, coming amongst us. But even more, he became one of us. That is, he who is wholly righteous, without spot or blemish, he who knew no sin, became sin, and was fat the tree, died a shameful and horrible death, and suffered the awful judgment due for sin. On Calvary, he who was mercy knew no mercy, so that sinners like you and me could receive mercy all our days. So come, come to Christ, receive God's mercy afresh today. He saves from what iniquities merit. He gives what is not warranted. He loves perpetually. And He provides assurance of unfailing love. Believe in Christ. But two, praise God for His mercy. Look at, look at what He did for David. He was kind to deliver him despite his best efforts to the contrary. The Lord was the light that followed him all his way. And dear Christian, he does that for you too. Psalm 36, verse 5. God's steadfast love extends to the heavens, his faithfulness to the clouds. In other words, you cannot measure it. You can't can't break out your tape measure and figure its limits. Because... Psalm 100, verse 5, His mercy is everlasting. It doesn't cease. So give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. But maybe maybe you find it difficult today to praise God because of your circumstances, because you're weighed down by anxiety and fear. Listen, in response to your trials and troubles, fix your eyes not on your cares, but on him who cares for you. Do not let your joy be determined by your circumstances, but by your Savior. Bless God for his abundant grace. Worship him because of his constant kindness, even in difficulties. For as the hymn writer says, he is the joy that seeketh you through pain, the love that will not let you go. Praise him then for his mercy. Yet not only this, finally respond to God's mercy by forsaking sin. And let's be honest. How could we not do that in light of God's mercy? 
Jonathan Edwards tells a story of what happened to young Phoebe Bartlett. Her parents were quite earnest in telling her older siblings about the gospel. But not so much with her because of her age. But when she was four years old, her mother overheard her in the closet. She was speaking in the most unusual way for a four-year-old. With sincerity and distress in her soul, she said, Pray, blessed Lord, give me salvation. I pray, I beg, pardon all my sins. She then came out. She sat in her mother's lap and she cried. Until finally she announced, the kingdom of heaven has come to me. Little Phoebe knew she was a sinner. She believed in Christ. She received God's mercy. But then, a few months later, she and her siblings came upon a neighbor's plum trees. And they took a few off. And they ate them. And yet later they, they felt really convicted for doing so because they actually stole them. So they all confessed to their mother and to their neighbor what they had done. But little Phoebe, she was heartbroken. She kept crying and crying until her mother finally asked, What's the matter, sweetie? Why are you doing this? She said, Mommy, it's because it was sin. Because it was sin. From that day on, little Phoebe, she had an aversion to plums. That's understandable. And she endeavored to never steal again. Why? Because of God's mercy, that's why. He had been so gracious to her, paying for what her sins deserved. How could she not respond by seeking to turn away from the very things that Christ died for? And how can we not do the same? Let little Phoebe instruct you on how you ought to respond to God's mercy. As Puritan Samuel Rutherford noted, do not love the knife that slit the throat of your Savior. That is, do not love sin. Hate it and forsake it. Turn from things like deception and doubt. Repent of apathy and a ho-hum spirituality. Do not respond to God's mercy by being indifferent or cold. Remember what we have seen here with David. God delivers. God is merciful. Believe upon Christ again and again in response. Praise the Lord for His grace. Forsake sin. And may your heart be set ablaze with love. For the God whose love will never let you go. Would you pray with me?